We thank you, Lord, <clears throat> for assembling us here to hear your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word has power. It is power. We thank you, Lord, that it is the power to create and the power to manifest, the power to remove, the power to build up, tear down. There is power in your word to accomplish what it pleases. So we thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. Impart it to us today through knowledge and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen and praise God. Amen, amen, amen. So um, we're going to talk today about the shame of it all. Amen, the shame of it all. And um, we'll talk about that and, and hopefully get you to understand what God has in mind with that phrase um, because there is importance here for us as Christians and believers uh, to have success in everything, well, I'll say the God ordained success in everything that we do, and um, that's kind of a broad statement. But God has ordained success for us in this life. I mean, there's nothing that uh, He has planned for us that indicates He does not want us to do well, and He wants us to. Um, uh, accomplish. He wants us to be happy. He wants us to have the joy of making progress and accomplishment. He created us uh, as good and to do good. And so everything when God creates it, he creates it as good. It is for the purpose of having a good outcome, uh, a, a known outcome and expected end, as the Bible says. And so as, as we begin to understand everything that God wants us to know about his mandate on us for success, uh, it's good to understand what things stand against that. And um, the shame is one of them. I look at some of the things that that you see in the Bible that seem to have a major impact uh, on man uh, started in the garden. You know, things that were were ours from the beginning, or things that were were set in that place. Um, it can give you an indication as to the prevalence, the the um, commonality, and the impact and importance of certain aspects of of life. And so, when you look at um, the third chapter of Genesis, where a man uh, was created and released into the garden, and you see the things that impacted him, uh, it's kind of kind of stands out to me that the the um, separation from God and then the spiritual forces that came in as the fruit of that act of sin and that act of separation are ancient problems. Uh, they plague mankind throughout history and uh, they are spiritual weapons against us. And so we need to kind of understand those things because some things are so common we kind of make pets out of them, don't we? Uh, you know, because you don't have a remedy for them. And that's, that's one of the problems before Christ. We didn't have a remedy for any of these things. But now after Christ, you gotta change your attitude about it. You've got to see fear as an enemy. You gotta see shame as an enemy. You have to see all of these negative spiritual forces that are ancient and seem to come as a package deal with life. 
that you have to see them as enemies to be overcome. Amen. Uh, not to overcome us and not to make friends with them and not accept them as part of life, but as enemies to be overcome once you come into the knowledge of Christ. And the Holy Spirit will let you know what's your friend and what's not. Uh, he'll let you know when certain things are are uh, hindering you uh, and how to resist them. You can see evidence in the word of what things are good and what things are not good and that you do have the authority to resist those things. So in Genesis chapter 126 we see God's plan for man and he said let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them. So we always had planned a man and a woman. Amen. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So he did that. He did what he said he was going to do. He made man in his image. Male and female he created. And God blessed them with his word. God's word is always a blessing. That's how God blesses with his word. Amen. God doesn't bless with things. He blesses with his word that contains things in it if you have need of things. Amen. And so when we come to understand how God moves and how he operates, we can see that uh, we're in kind of a war of words. It's kind of a challenge to see whose words are going to win out in the end. It's kind of a challenge to see whose word you're going to hold on to and whose word you're going to drop. Evidence does, has nothing to do with fact or truth or everlasting truth. Because there are two kinds of evidence, that which is seen and that which is unseen, isn't it? Your faith is unseen evidence, right? So the fact that there's seen evidence has nothing to do with truth. Okay, let's get it straight now because there are two kingdoms. There's a visible kingdom, which is temporary, and there's an invisible kingdom of God, which is eternal. So you always want to receive evidence from that which is eternal, not from that which is temporary. So seeing evidence is temporary. It can be removed, and if the devil decides to move it, he moves it. You got me? Like if, he, if you're depending upon your job solely for your income and for your security and the, Satan is the God of this world, he can shut that job down anytime he wants to and then your natural circumstance shifts and changes if you're depending on that. But if you're depending on God's kingdom as a source of all of your supply, then what's going on in the natural won't move you. They can threaten to shut it down and you can still have joy. You can, you can have a knowing that God's gonna take care of you in. Well, that, you know, if, if that's gonna be God, if that's, if that's what it's gonna be, let it be. But I know you're gonna take care of me. Amen. Cause you are my source. And so we always lean more into, more heavily into the unseen evidence, which is faith, than into the seen evidence, which is what's going on in the natural. And so that's the difference in our two kingdoms. And so when when uh, God told Adam that, uh, well, he was discussing this with himself. What you see right there is God making plans. 
And he makes plans in the Trinity. He has two witnesses to everything that he does. That's why it's established. Amen. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. That's why God's word lasts forever. There was always the three of them giving witness and bearing witness to it. That's what makes it valid. That's why there's the rest of the God. That's why Buddha, Allah, all of them are dead because they don't have three witnesses to what they're saying. To the concept aspect of it. So in the mind of God, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the same mind. And that's how it gets established. And so nobody else can say their word lasts forever and it's forever settled. But God. Because it was settled from the beginning by by the fact that God is triune. And so God sets up his own rules. He said in the mouth of two or three witnesses is every word established. huh? Because he is God. He makes up the rules. He decides what goes and what doesn't go. And so it's best to understand. If you understand the power of God's word, you'll be more apt to really take it seriously as something you can rely on. And something that will happen if it's believed. Your job is to continue to believe it. Amen. And not be persuaded any other way. And so God then puts a man in the, and he puts them in the, in the, uh, garden that he has given the man authority and dominion to tend that garden and everything that they need to sustain them is already there. To tend really, it doesn't mean like it does now. There was no weeds in this garden. There was no crabgrass that it didn't grow. He didn't have to have a lawnmower. He just, he just spoke what he desired. He was like God. So God does things by his word. Adam and Eve do things by their word. That's why their words eventually got him into trouble because their, their, their kingdom moved by their word. So we see over in chapter three now, the 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 entrance of iniquity, fear and shame toward God. In verse three, verse seven, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now they had always walked with God before, but this time they hid. Amen. And and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? He said, I heard your voice and I got scared. So that had never happened before. So God knew something different had transpired in the time that he left last spoke to them. And he said, who told you this? Whenever we come to knowledge, it has to come from somewhere. The knowledge that we have about ourselves comes from a source. Now before we're saved, we've got one source for who we are and that's Satan. He's the God of this world so he runs everything. So that's why we have feelings of inadequacy. That's why we, we, uh, hide from certain people because they make us feel bad. You know, that's because their words do things to us that, that make us feel uneasy. They're, they're unpleasant people we say. You see what I'm saying? It's the same thing that they experienced here. And so God asked them, who told you? He said, did you eat of that tree? They never said yes. 
Huh? They never said yes. So this is important. Because until you can say yes when your sin is pointed out, you won't get free of it. So instead of receiving freedom from sin, they took it upon themselves to try and deal with it. Amen. When you try and deal with iniquity, a spiritual force that is greater than you, you won't win. It'll continue to stay on your soul and stay on your soul and stay on your soul. And you won't be able to get rid of it. So Adam now is hiding from God and he takes it upon himself to try and find a remedy for his unfortunate condition. He knows something's wrong. But he doesn't know how to right the wrong. And God does have an answer for them. But they won't take the answer. See the answer out of sin is always confession and repentance and a desire to turn around from it. So what they do here is what brought generation upon generation upon generation of sin to mankind. And this is what man continually does outside of the humility and repentance before God that we need to have so that we can get free from our sin. And so what they do is they try and get rid of their sin through blame. So blame is really a fake atonement, isn't it? Now, how many people use blame as an excuse for what they do? Well, I wouldn't have done it, but I was raised without a father, or I was raised in this, or I was raised in that, or I didn't have this, or I didn't have that. So pointing to our lack as an excuse is not a remedy for sin. Now, you might be able to impress a few people not to to hold you accountable or as accountable as they could, kind of soften the blow a little bit, but you'll never get free from it. And so God immediately introduces to them a remedy for their miserable condition. When he kills that animal and makes a coat of skins for them, he begins to demonstrate to them that there will have to be a shedding of blood for them to get a relief from their burdens and an open door for fellowship with God again. You got me? But God becomes distant to humanity because he cannot come near them because of their iniquity. It would destroy them. And so God sets them now on a pattern of learning God again. When you're in darkness, you're in ignorance, you don't know things. See, this is a source of shame for many people. Ignorance and lack of knowledge. And so everything almost that comes from darkness will bring shame with it. And the only way out of shame is the blood atonement. This is a pattern that God is setting up with them so that they saw when God removed the the fig leaves that they had covered themselves with, your mind will tell you to do a lot of things as a remedy that don't work. So in their on their own power, they come up with things that never work. 
But under God's authority, they come up with things that do work. And so as the 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 animal skins start to get scarce or start to wear out, they figure out we got to kill another animal so that we can continue to cover ourselves. And this is how it begins. So that animal that shed blood then puts them in contact with God. Every time they would kill an animal and cover themselves, they had a release that made them feel like, and they say, yeah, we feel like we used to feel when God, let's call on God and ask him for what we need right now. See, it becomes an automatic thing. That the blood shed, when it's, when the power of it is experienced, it becomes an automatic pattern for people to go back to that original experience. Or to desire to go back to that original experience. Because who doesn't feel better when they're not guilty? Who doesn't feel better when they're not ashamed? Who doesn't feel better when they get a relief from that burden? And so it's kind of like you figure it out almost on your own. Like there's something in every human being that God has left in their soul. That it's an imprint where they can identify with certain things. And the power of the blood is one of those things. There's not a culture you can go to. There's not a country you can go to where they don't have some knowledge and some experience with blood atonement for sin. It's just so common. And so God has left that in the souls of human beings so that we can know that that really is the way back to God. Now under the old covenant it was a continual offering of the blood of animals. But in Christianity now we know that we don't have to do that anymore. That method of sacrifice has been canceled because of the one time sacrifice of Christ for the remission of sins. All sin forever. I don't care if you keep doing it over and over and over again. He keeps forgiving you when you keep coming to him. You understand me? And so there, it's that powerful to renew us and help us. Amen. So we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse, okay, still, okay, 3, we're about 13, in case you're still fishing for it. Amen. So God wants to know, and he knows now that they have, have, um, eaten from that tree in verse 21 and to Adam also and his wife did God make coats of skin and clothe them so now they have a temporary covering or a temporary clothing until it either wears out gets too small doesn't fit right something but they're going to have to keep renewing this ritual so that they can stay clothed and not live in total shame 24 hours a day you know all the time and I'll tell you why it's not good to live in shame so so we'll get to that now satan knew that man's connection to god was a source of his dominion and rulership and blessing Okay, so from Genesis one twenty six, we we see where God says, "Let us make man in our image, and let us give him dominion." When that was spoken, I'm sure Satan's antenna went up, and he got hot mad because he knew that as long as the man had dominion and can live peacefully with God, there was no chance for him to make headway anywhere. 
So he devised a plan to separate man from God. And this is Satan's, uh, that's his, his always his MO is to put a gulf between us and God, to put a, a separation. Why? Cause he's separated from God. And he's jealous of anybody that has power from God. And so he sets about continually to separate us out from God one way or the other. So he knew that 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 was his connection to God was the source of everything for him. And it's true now. Our connection with God is so important for us. To stay on top of life as we know it. To stay, uh, to keep the devil under our feet. To keep out of, of, uh, uh, trouble. To keep out of, of discouragement and failure. So, so, uh, uh, what happened was when iniquity came into them, Adam and Eve began to do things that they used to do that worked for them and now things just were disastrous. When they would speak words, to one another. Those words would bring pain to them. Just like somebody cussing you or whatever, you know, you know, disrespecting you or something. It, it, it had the same power against one another. So it began to separate the two of them as well. Eventually it fell on their children. They had two boys. One murdered the other one. So this is a disaster. Every time they turn around, a disaster. But there was one thing they knew good that God had left them with and that was the ability to connect with him through the shedding of blood. Amen. And so and it had to be innocent blood. It had to be an animal without spot or blemish. Because a blemish meant that there was something wrong with that sacrifice. So it had to be perfect. And so God... And it, it would take time. See, you couldn't just throw anything at God, just like you can't now. We can't do what we want to do and think we please God. Anybody who does that in, in thinking right. You know, you can't give him any kind of, you have to give the required sacrifice. You just can't give him anything and think your life is going to go well. And so, so God then puts, puts it out there for them to be able to get back to him. And when things get really rough, God knows how to deal with them. God also was able to speak to them. In his sovereignty, he can talk to anybody. And so God was able to contact them when, when they needed, when things got too, too bad, like it did at the time of Noah. God comes and, and he sends a remedy. Amen. He kills all the bad people and he saves a handful of good and starts all over again. So God has always an opportunity to contact us, but we don't have the fellowship, the familiar, peaceful fellowship that we need to have. Even now that we're born again, oftentimes we don't have the peaceful fellowship with God that we need to have. The enemy comes in there with some goofy idea in your mind to give you to think that it's something other than what it is. So he's always there to give us trouble. Amen. So each time it seems that, that Adam and Eve sent out to do good, disaster would happen. And this is what causes shame. And shame brings a number of things with it. Because shame is the fruit of sin and disobedience. Guilt then becomes the penalty. Because it is worn until forgiveness and atonement comes to remove it. So guilt is what 
brings heaviness to us. Guilt is is the weight of sin on our conscience and on our souls. So guilt is what we try hard to get rid of because it has a punishing weight to it. You ever feel bad about something that you've done or said and even though you you've gotten you've gone to God and you repented and you've gotten forgiveness and the weight of it Every time you think about it, you think, gee, I wish I hadn't done that. That's still like a spot on my record. Or if I could go back and redo it again, I wouldn't do it that way. And, you know, many times God will will graciously uh, let us have reconciliation with the person we offended. And then we, we make attempts to make the relationship better. I mean, most people will do that. You know, people aren't as messed up sometimes as <laughs> we think they are. But most people will try to make some kind of amends for it. And so your desire to do better is a sign of freedom and righteousness. Amen. Uh, if that sin were not atoned for, you'd still be making excuses. For why you did it. You got me? It's like, well, you know, I, I didn't do anything. They were the ones that, you know how your mind gets involved in that, that entangled web of pushing, pushing blame off on somebody else. So when, when you find yourself guilty and because, and guilt comes because you did something. It doesn't, it doesn't just visit you out of nowhere. Oh, let me see if I can go sit on so and so today who's totally innocent. Amen. Because these things are regulated by God. You know, they come on, come on people because of these acts. Now, I'm not saying that the enemy can't visit you with guilt, but I wouldn't try to just fight the devil all day long to leave me alone. I'd go back to God. And God, you know, I, I've confessed this. Now I'm still feeling guilty. Now, can you help me with this? It's just where you go. You don't go to fighting it off in your flesh and, and not wanting it to be said of you that you do anything wrong. Come on, folks. We, we're, we're, we're greater than that as people. You know, we're bigger than that. So when we, we know that shame is the fruit of sin and disobedience and guilt is the penalty because it is worn until the work of forgiveness removes it. Amen. So you're going to feel guilty until you go to the foot of the cross and confess it to God. I say, God, and sometimes you can just pick up guilt and not know where it comes from, you know, because it can sometimes be a familiar spirit. We'll talk about that uh, because it, it may often visit in households, family lines, things of that nature. So guilt is what we try hard to get rid of because of the punishing weight of it. So you don't feel free if you feel punished. Huh? You feel like something's still wrong. And so we need to learn how to master receiving our freedom from sin. See, there's a work that we have to do in order to master it so that it doesn't work a work that the enemy likes to work in us. And, and we'll talk about that. So, <clears throat> uh, Adam hid his nakedness, the nakedness which he now wore, 
He was unaware of. And he wore it instead of God's glory. Amen. So where he had a freedom in God before, now he has a fear. And it's not a worshipful, reverential fear, but it's a fear of retribution. It's fear that God's out to get him. And this is why your loved ones don't get saved real easy. The minute you show up and mention God to them, if they're not friends with God, they think God's looking for them to punish them for what they've done wrong because they know they're still guilty. They don't have, they don't have privilege of the blood atonement. And so what we need to do as believers is continue to pray and, and continue to forgive them and not hold them in contempt of God's court, but ask God to show them the light and show them the way of righteousness. Uh, I like the way Henry Groover put it. He said that God told him that if he would remit their sins for a brief period of time, a lifting would come of their sin and then enough light would go in that they could see it and see the grace of God and repent and come to repentance. And I think that's beautiful. You know, if you can remember that, that will give you hope. You don't have to try and make excuses for your family not serving God. You don't have to be ashamed of that. You don't have to feel that it's hopeless. You don't have to feel any of those things. You can feel hope and encouragement, but you got to do the work. You know, that it takes to a prayer to get those people in the place where they need to be. So you don't ask God to forgive them eternally and let them go to hell. You want them to be forgiven so that they can repent. And the light of Christ can come in and they can know that their sins are forgiven and there's hope for them to get out of this dilemma that they're in. So, uh, in, in, um, so Satan used shame. That's a weapon of his against man's dominion. Shame and nakedness all come from the kingdom of darkness. There's nothing good about either one of them. Now uh, um, it, Adam has become intimate with good and evil. Which means that his life and his words and his thoughts are intertwined with both good and evil. That's how people can start out wanting to do something good and it mess up and they can't figure out what happened. You see, they're intertwined. So that you can't separate them out anymore. So there's a little bit of good mixed in with everything that Satan does. There's a little bit of fun, a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of hope for something. You see, some some of these people that, you know, they've been in, I was in church and I prayed and I asked God to send me a good husband and, and it's been a disaster ever since we've been married, you know. Um, there are a lot of different answers for that. It might be that that person was a disaster all along, but you refuse to look at it. That happens a lot with people. Sometimes you you think it it's not a big thing until you get in covenant relationship. See, if you're not married to somebody, their faults may not be a big thing. But wait till you get married to them. And that God starts holding you accountable to uphold the rules of a marriage covenant in that relationship. And so you're going to find out things are very different. And I try to tell people, I said, it's different when you're married because... And they pay no attention. 
Yeah. Well, I just know when we, before we got married, we got along better. I said, yeah, because you were free not to get along with one another and you knew it. Now you must find a way to get along. And the only way you're going to do that is you got to ask God for help. He ordained marriage. He governs over it and he will help you. If you're a sinner, he'll help you in a marriage. I mean, seriously. God will help that. He he initiated that institution for a reason. And so many times people feel shackled to somebody when they're married. You don't have to feel shackled. You know, you can love you can love people out of any kind of stupidity and any kind of sin because love never fails. But most people don't really try it. That's why there's so much failure. What we, what we do is we love ourselves. We want what we want first before we can even give anything in a marriage to that other person. Oh, you know, you, you got a barren tree in your yard. What are you going to do, <laughs> do with it? You have to feed it or something. So God then shuts Adam and Eve off from the tree of life. So they have to grope in darkness until they can make periodic contact with God through sacrifice. When they sacrifice, a little light emerges. Amen? So when God causes those skins to dry up and shrink from from use, they need another set of clothing. So they go back, make and kill another animal, and then the light of God begins to come in and enlighten them. So he begins to make a pathway. Even before Moses came, you'll see in the Bible where there were people that made altars and sacrifices to God. And there was no rules, there was no laws, it was just a known thing. So this is something that was handed down. Now Satan uh, mocked it by making other gods and causing people to make sacrifices to false gods. So it was common to make a sacrifice to the God that you were depending on. To answer your prayer and answer your need. But in being shut off from the tree of life. They have to grope in darkness. Until they can make periodic contact with God through sacrifice. When they sacrifice a little light comes in. And they can cannot walk freely with God. But now must commit to living by learning. So here we see the trial and error of life. How many people start out in a career and it fizzles out and then they got to start all over again? Well, if we really knew God and knew his plan, we wouldn't have to keep starting and stopping. So really, the atonement takes care of the drawback, the negative drawback that comes in this process of learning. There's nothing worse than than having uh, uh, being in a class and failing the class and knowing there's nothing that you can do to correct it. Anybody ever had a class they were failing in and the teacher, you go to the teacher said, how can I get some credits? Like, <laughs> Amen. So we all want to pass our test. And so that's what God is doing with us now. He is, he, we are in a restoration mode where everything now that we do can be successful. We're not in the trial and error aspect of living anymore. We're in success mode. 
That's why he tells us to pray without ceasing. Don't ever stop believing God for what you want because this is not trial and error. If you're trusting God's word, it's going to work. I don't care where you are, where you live, how little they know about God or how much they know about God. Once you get into doing things God's way through his word, it will definitely work. And so when you live in the new covenant with God, there is no more trial and error. The Bible says the Mosaic law was our schoolmaster. That was our teacher to bring us to Christ now who lives within us and gives us the fullness of God. So you're not learning and making errors and then you got to fail and start all over again and quit. All the people you see who quit on God have been deceived by the devil to think that there was a stopping point in God. Amen. There is no stopping point in God. If if the blood atonement is real, then it pays for every mistake you make and you get a fresh start. Nothing's on your record anymore. So you don't run out of trial and error and, and uh, uh, you know, where you're running out of hope and running out of options and you just can't learn this. I just can't get this right. There's no such thing. There's no such thing in God's kingdom. You want something from God, he gives you the power to get it through his word. But your job is to show God that you really believe him. And that is to stay with that word no matter what. So that word shame, what does that mean? It's it's kind of it's interesting how it's used in the Bible. Uh, and we'll talk about that because shame is a very powerful weapon of the enemy. You may not think it is. But it is because it drives us in so many ways. That word shame means embarrassment, contempt. It means scorn. You ever have somebody make fun of you over something? That that brings shame with it. See, that's a contempt and it brings a shame to the person that wears it. It means rebuke. It means to spring from evil. Confusion. Reproach. Whispering. You ever go in a room and and people were talking and they shut up when you come in? Mm -hmm. It means poverty. And it's part of the divine judgment for sin. The opposite of shame is confidence, boldness, Faith and ability. Actually the enemy of dominion is shame. Because if you're ashamed of something, you're confused about it and you can't make a firm decision. You ever bumble and fumble and stumble around? See, uh, let me tell you what keeps people from from mastering things. 
is when when you lack understanding or you lack knowledge, you have one or two ways to deal with that. The humble person will seek knowledge and seek understanding, which means you have to admit that you don't know. But shame blocks the admission that you don't know. So if you're ashamed of your ignorance, you won't admit you don't know something. Then you'll go about confused, not able to make a firm decision about it. Or when you do, it's like uh, grabbing in a, you've seen how they'll, they'll have a hopper with a bunch of little choices in it. You can pull one out. That's what happens when you're confused. Your mind is like a big hopper with a bunch of ideas floating around in it. And you just pull one just to get rid of your nervousness and your shame. And so many times people will make, that's why God tells us that he has a covenant of peace. Peace takes away shame. So when you go to God in your confusion and your shame and your your guilt and all that stuff, and you receive his peace, your mind becomes settled. You're able to hear from him and you're able to make a correct decision. So the answer for this kind of confusion and and not knowing and the reproach and the embarrassment and groping here, groping there, trying this, trying that. You you ever notice that when you, you don't have an answer, firm answer for something, you'll get an idea and you say, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. And then 10 minutes later you get another idea. A different one? And then ten minutes later there's a different one? And then ten minutes later there's, that's the hopper. That's the hopper of shame. That all of these ideas float around in. The devil is the author of your hopper. In case you think God's in there, he's not in there. God has one answer and it's gonna work and it's gonna work all the time. But we can't get to it until we confess our shame. See, you can't, you can't get to God without confession, folks. I got news for you. You can't, God, I don't know what to do. I'm so ashamed and confused here and I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. God, please help me. I, I confess this shame. Can you please remove it? Can, can you remove this confusion out of my life and, and allow God to come in and settle you first instead of you trying to make a decision that you're not even sure it's going to work. The Bible says what's not of faith is sin. So if you don't have God's confidence in what you're doing, you might as well not do anything. You might have to wait a little bit before that that guilt and shame and confusion eases up on you. And so when we understand that that the shame of it all uh, comes to us in a, a big ugly package to keep us from exercising confident dominion in our decisions. This is why we we dislike certain faith people. We they have such a confidence in simple things that we think they're arrogant. Hmm? You ever felt that way about somebody who knows what they're doing and knows God? And you think, well, who do they think they are? Because you're down here in the land of shame and confusion, and you can't imagine anybody really living like that. You know, you just ah, wow, what 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 what. But that's the place that God wants us all to live. 
in that place of confidence. He doesn't want us confused. He doesn't want us ashamed and embarrassed. He wants us fully involved in what he does. So it it is a shame against one's soul, a sin against one's soul. Amen. Shame is. So we said the opposite of shame is confidence, boldness, faith, and ability. The enemy of dominion is shame. That's why Jesus took it on the cross. And the Bible is explicit telling us that he bore our shame. He carried it away. So that we don't have to experience it and be groping still in darkness not knowing what to do. Shame is so common we name one of the seven dwarfs after it. Huh? Bashful. See we put cute names on things so we accept them. Huh? People say, oh oh, she's just bashful. You just cursed that kid. You gotta watch stuff like that, folks. It's, it, it, shame can be a familiar spirit in a family line. Yeah, she just, she just a shy one. She's a bashful one. She just, you know, just don't expect much out of her. Or him. Mm-hmm. Psalm 109.29, turn there, I'll show you an example here. It says here, let mine adversaries be clothed with shame. And let their cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. So this was a curse that people would place upon their enemies. Confusion is very powerful to defeat you. So if you wanted to defeat your enemy, you didn't even have to lift a finger against them. You know the the Israelites understood spiritual things very very well. Because they served a God who was a spirit. They knew when certain spirits were, were advantageous and knew when, when they were not. And many times in the Psalms, you, you see, sometimes you'll see the writers say kill them outright and then sometimes they use spirits to, to come against those people so that they didn't have, wouldn't have success over them. So Hebrews would pray shame on their enemies. God's judgment Because shame is paralyzing. It will paralyze you. Keep you from doing anything. Amen. If you're ashamed of your ignorance. I've seen people that get to be adults without a high school education. And because they've gotten of an age now. Where embarrassment guides their life. They won't go back and try to learn. In fact, they won't even admit that they're, you know, they're illiterate. They, they won't even try anything. Why? Shame paralyzes you to inaction and inactivity. 
Anybody who's tried to teach adults to read, you'll know that that's a big hurdle for them to have to get over. How the embarrassment that they feel. It's just so common. So anytime we lack knowledge, there's a shame that comes upon us. And we shouldn't even be expected to know certain things. You understand what I'm saying? But shame comes anyway. You know, I'll tell people sometimes, if you can get over uh, being concerned about how you look when you do certain things, you can master anything. You got it? People worry about, do they look smart? Do they look dumb? Do they look knowledgeable? Do they look, you know, they just... Huh? <laughs> now, correction is an instruction are always very helpful, but people ignore most of it. Huh? And we even condemn people that try to teach us and instruct us. Who called some people know-it-alls? Uh, who do you think you are? You, I don't need you to tell me what to do. As you know, the shame, embarrassment, anger, all of those evil forces converge in the same place. Amen. If you, if you're a person who is, is, you know, this is why sometimes people who have extraordinary intelligence get in trouble. Because they're so condemned and put down. Why? Devil, Satan doesn't want you to be able to help anybody with knowledge. He loves keeping everybody ignorant. If he can keep us ignorant, man. That's why God set apart the law to teach us. He put the law in motion to teach people how not to be ignorant. Amen. You just see, the darkness is very, very controlling in this earth. So the Hebrew would curse his enemy with shame and confusion. Let him be clothed with shame. I've done that in in prayer, in the spirit. I've released confusion on the devil and his plans. You know, get back a dose of what you give. Amen. I was listening to a, a gentleman who was being, uh, was indicted by the Mueller Commission. And, uh, he's a Christian. And he was saying, he said, you know, I know I'm gonna be indicted. He said, but I'm not gonna testify. He said, I'm not gonna make a deal with anybody. I'm not, he said, I'm gonna stand on Jeremiah, I think it's 33, with the, where their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. And he said this, he said, a couple that I knew many years ago told me that I would be persecuted for a lot of the work that I do. He said, and they gave me the scripture. He said, and I have stood on the scripture for many years. Every time someone comes against me, I have stood on the scripture. And I said, well, brother, I'm standing with you <laughs> because, you know, we pray that all the time. It's in the prayer manual. Go look, you'll see. <laughs> Amen. But um, we, you want the devil's plans to be confused. If you put confusion and shame on him, let him be paralyzed. Let him not know what to do. Amen. Let him suffer the consequences of his own making. So yeah, they would pray shame on their enemies. Amen. <clears throat> 
shame comes to those who trust in earthly powers and trust in man. And that's Second Chronicles. Let me see if I can get it in this Bible. Second Chronicles. Ay, ay, ay. I think it's 32. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Second Chronicles 32. Twenty one says, And the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and all the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. So when you're defeated, shame becomes your portion. When you trust in the natural things and they fail, shame becomes your portion. Why? Because it's supposed to immobilize you. I bet they'll go back and think real long and hard the next time they jump out and try to fight against God. Amen? That's what it's for. And so you can see shame returning onto the face of the enemies of God. Amen? Um, Also in Isaiah chapter 30. Let me see if I can find that one. Isaiah 30 and verse 3. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame. And the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. So you see shame and confusion work hand in hand. So what they're saying is because you're trusting in the natural and not trusting in God. It's going to lead to shame and confusion. So you'll never get out of this trouble until you learn to trust God. So shame becomes a curse to those who uh, trust in, in the natural things. That's why you'll never get rid of shame until you come into the atonement of God and learn how to trust in the power of the blood of Jesus. It's not to get you out of trouble one time. It's for you to walk in that path on a continual basis. Amen? Job 8, we see what happens to people who mock righteousness. Man, Job chapter 8, I think it's verse 22, says, They that hate you shall be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked shall come to naught. Amen. So, this is one of Job's friends. A man that was mocking God, not thinking God was was in Job's life anymore. So it comes on those who mock righteousness. Sin brings shame all the time. Never without. You know, you see people that sometimes you come come into their presence and they're happy and joyful, and sometimes they don't want to make contact with you, eye contact with you. You know, some it's just that way. Sin also falls on families and can become a familiar spirit in that um, household. Um, Saul had a son. Now why didn't I write that down? Uh, anyway, one of Saul's sons name was Ishbosheth, which means man of shame. So it became a family curse. 
that shame would come on every single member of his family. Now, if you recall, when uh, Saul was killed, Jonathan was killed with him. When David took over the throne, all of Saul's descendants were hunted down by David's men and killed. It was an automatic, um, it, it was like a trigger that happened. And people knew that they could be rewarded if they would kill the enemies of the new king. So rarely did they stop and question whether they should execute those people. So Ishbosheth and his, he had a brother Mephibosheth. There's another shame situation there. Uh, uh, um, that, that word Bosh means shame. So as long as they carried that in there, their name, uh, there would be confusion and misfortune to fall in them. You know, uh, now who would name their kid that? I don't know, but apparently somebody's mother or father wasn't in a good mood when these kids were born. And so they, people, people would oftentimes name children based on the circumstances that they were born in. They would name, they would become memorials to circumstances either good or bad. And so they just didn't know any better. You know, you spit out a name and that's what, what you got. And so uh, they wind up running from David's mighty men. Ishbosheth, I think, did, was killed, but Mephibosheth, because David set out an order and a decree not to kill any more Saul's sons. Amen. Because he was in covenant with that family, uh, he he uh, Mephibosheth was the one who was lame on his feet, and he he was carried away. And so David did find him, was able to bless him. He he sat at David's table all the days of his life. Amen. He got carried in and carried out, but he he was there all the days of his life. And wasn't because he was lame; it was because David. Um, was in covenant to bless that family. But see, this, this shame becomes a familiar spirit over this family. And it happens now. Where shame can become a familiar spirit over a family, over circumstances. You'll see sometimes, a, a either a family or a, a, a individual in a family can wind up being in shameful circumstances almost their entire life. You know, we call them the black sheep of the family. The Nothing ever works out for them. You know, they try this and it doesn't work. They try that and it confusion, shame, failure, poverty will fall upon them because it's a familiar spirit in that family line. And so if we're not careful now, because it's a familiar spirit, that doesn't mean everybody's a victim to it. Because you'll see some some children will manage to fight their way out of it. Huh? Like kids, a whole family winds up in foster care. Now that in itself brings shame. I don't know about where you live. But it's a shame when your parents don't want you. It's a shame when your mother can't take care of you. It's a shame when you're not like everybody else. You're different and not in a good way. And so many times 
there's that curse of shame that you see falling on a, a bloodline because of familiar spirits that hover around and what familiar spirits do is they orchestrate circumstances to bring shame to people. And so when it, shame will fall on anybody who's different because every they stand out and stand out for purposes of ridicule. And so when that happens, you'll find oftentimes people will build up a pride and an arrogance as a defense against shame. So pride and arrogance really are false manifestations of dominion. Now think about it. An arrogant person feels confident. They're adamant. Nothing can touch me. Nothing hurts me. Why? Because deep inside they got shame. And that's how they fight it. They fight it with overcompensation. Huh? Some of you who understand defense mechanisms, a little pop psychology. People use defenses against darkness when they don't have the atonement. You know, people just use what they have, which ain't much, but they don't know it, but they keep using it. Then their arrogance causes them to be what some people might call hard-headed. Oh, you can't talk to him like Nabal. You know, you can't talk to people. You can't tell him anything and they'll keep going the wrong way to their own hurt. You can see them headed over the cliff and they keep going because pride has blinded them. Amen. They can't, can't do it. And all of this comes because of shame. It'll, it'll visit families. It'll hover over families. It'll keep knocking at the door until it can do something. To put your your confidence in jeopardy, your relationship with God. This happens all the time. It's not as rare as we may, and it's not as extreme as we may think it is. People deal with shame all of the time. You know, you 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 messed up your bank account. Now you can't pay your bills. Poverty always brings shame. In fact, the the one of the words for shame means poverty. Amen. Because it's such a common pitfall for man to fall into. And so when we when we do that, when we find ourselves in a situation where shame is involved, your best defense and one you can always use is to repent and confess it and keep it in the light. Don't let it stay in darkness. Keep it in the light. You know, say, I don't know what's going on here. You know, I don't know how to do this. Can somebody show me? Simple things like that. It would shock you how many people are ashamed of everything. You know, when sometimes when I work with people, you know, in, in hospitality, especially if I know they're new to it, I have such battles with people because they keep trying to explain why they didn't do it right and they cover it up and cover it up. And some people never. I said, you know what? Why don't you go work with Chuck over at the table? <laughs> I'm serious. Because we're not going to kill nobody with this food. We're not going to poison anybody with this food. We're not going to stand here and argue about whether you did that right or wrong. You just go someplace else. A kitchen is a place where, you know, chefs who are top-notch chefs, they know how to break that. 
prideful spirit off of people. They leave them scraping vegetables for 10 years until they learn how to (laughs) scrape vegetables without making excuses. You understand me? There's a way to break pride off of people. There's a way to break it off yourself. There's a way to live humble before God so that it won't be a stumbling block to you. So you don't languish in confusion, doubt. And then to say you have dominion to somebody who's confused and shameful like that, it's like talking a different language. What do you mean? Well, you have dominion in God. You can take, oh, well, you don't understand. See, and there we go, covering and making excuses for it again. People, when they have to go to the doctor, where they got symptoms or sick, whatever you want to call it. Well, I got faith and I know God. And I say, oh, here we go again. See, that's a defense mechanism against your shame. Why are you ashamed that the devil's put symptoms on you? Number one, they ain't your symptoms. Number two, we all fighting the same devil. You understand what I'm saying? But see, people who are living shame live in a world where they are responsible for everything. Huh? Shame makes you feel guilty and responsible for it. And you didn't ask for it. Oh, Mr. Devil, could you send me some problems in my life so I can feel ashamed? Nobody does that. Who does that? So why are you being responsible for it? Make it your enemy and you'll be able to overcome it. Quit trying to make friends with it and make excuses for it and own it. As belonging to you permanently. Own it long enough to confess it and ask God to get rid of it for you. So you can walk free of shame. God this really is a problem for me. I'm not liking this situation I'm in. I'm not liking the way I think. I'm not liking the way I feel about it. Worst thing in the world you can do is blame somebody else for how you feel. It's such a common thing that people do. But as long as you're putting the blame, you'll be just like in the garden. You'll never get rid of it. You'll never, you'll always be placing blame. You know. Well, you make me feel, I don't make you do, if I could make you do something, I'd make you read your word. And renew your mind. But I can't make you do anything. Well my husband makes me feel. He's not making you do nothing. Because he'd make you clean the house. And cook a decent meal. If he could make you do something. Then I'm a witness. Huh? Why do we make other people responsible for our lives? See owning things and being responsible. Is the most powerful thing you can do. Because it confuses the devil. Because he's so used to people wanting to blame others for their situation. When he finds somebody who's willing to take responsibility and go to God and say, God, help me to know how to fight this. I don't like this in my life. I don't like when I do this automatically when difficulty comes into my help me to do better help me to do your will without going down this route of blaming everybody 
playing the victim, trying to get pity, living in self-doubt, all that. Why go down that road when you don't have to? All that's going to happen is you get stuck down there in the mud on that road and God's going to have to send a word to pull you out anyway. So get yourself out of your own difficulty. Learn how to go to God with these things and, and get back dominion to do right. Get back dominion to see righteousness come in your life. Get back dominion to do good things with your words. Amen. So mocking righteousness will always bring shame. You know, people who around you who make fun of you because you go to church. You're giving people all your money. You have to give them money all the time. You have to go there all the time. It's mocking righteousness. So shame comes on them. In fact, they're probably ashamed anyway. Your righteousness puts them in shame all the time anyway. So don't take it personal, folks. Amen. God's remedy is to remove shame and to impute righteousness. Turn to Isaiah 54. It's a familiar, familiar scripture. Should be for us. Amen. Isaiah 54 and verse 4. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. Neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth. Hallelujah. How many dumb things that we do when we were young and thought we knew everything? And shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. You know in Israel it was a shame to be unmarried. Amen. It's a shame now with a lot of people. Most people. They can they can fake it and cover it up and try to have a fake life, you know, instead of the life that God puts in everybody's heart to have. Sometimes people are called to be single, but not a whole lot of them. If they're single and not serving God, something's not right. That's the life God calls you to once you know him. He says the Lord of hosts is his name which means he is the one who will fight for you. He fights the shame for us. And your redeemer the one who purchased you out of the power of shame. The Holy One of Israel the God of the whole earth shall he be called. So that's why you don't have shame. Because you are married to him. Amen. If marriage takes away the reproach of widowhood and singleness, then when you're married to God, he takes all the shame that's associated with every single thing you've ever done wrong. He takes all of that away. In Isaiah 61, 7, it says pretty much the same thing. Let's look at that one, see if it's a little different. For your shame you shall have double when God redeems you. And for confusion, you see both of those terms used together. Shame and confusion are the same thing. And a confusion really means you don't have answers. It doesn't mean a temporary state of whatever. And it means that your understanding is perverted. So confusion means that whatever you choose always comes out wrong. 
They shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore their land shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be upon them. So when you choose God's way, when you choose the way of the atonement, when you choose Christ, instead of trying to make excuses for your shame, trying to break out the old fig leaf and cover up, excuses really are false coverings for shame. Amen. And you can make excuses all you want to, you know, but you'll You'll never get it. I always tell people, I said, if you can keep quit making excuses, you'd quit repeating the same mistake. See, it's like in school. When I was, I, I taught, I didn't teach elementary, I taught, taught some high school and then, you know, professional school. But when you teach and you point out errors to students, they're supposed to ask you to show them the correct answer so that that that's a given in a student teacher relationship you don't have students who stand up well the reason i got the wrong answer was but we do it huh we do it always a reason you know um you know, this is not the way to do this. Well, see, I was I was going to do it. You see what I'm saying? We're not after that. See, you and I are after different things. See, I'm after you getting it right and you're after trying to prove it's not wrong. So what happens is you talk long enough you really haven't proved it's not wrong, but you've satisfied yourself that it's not. And you go right back and make the same mistake again. Yeah, it's true. I mean, this is human stuff. But we're not human. Mere human. you got to shed that mere humanity and put on Christ. And the way Christ does it is he, if, when Jesus points out your fault to you, you go to him and tell him, well, the reason I did it is because I hope not. I hope not. Huh? And nobody's ridiculing you, but people feel ridiculed when they're wrong. Where does that ridicule come? It comes from their conscience. See, you begin to ridicule yourself. You watch yourself sometimes. You you struggle with something and you want to get get victory over it. Oh, there you go again. You made that same. St- you know, we all have that in our brains, folks. Don't try to act like you don't, because you'll beat yourself up to a pulp instead of going to God. Just go to God. And get rid of it. Say, God, here I am again. You know, I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll do that sometimes with snacks. You know, little peanuts and stuff, you know, and pretty soon it's two hands full of peanuts. I said, now look, yeah, you did that again. And I said, well, why didn't you say that before you grabbed handful number three? Right. You never do it at the right time. So it's just like a false repentance. You know, you think you're doing something by punishing yourself after the fact when you really should have spoke up and stopped yourself before you did it you know 
It's funny, but not. But you know, we, that's, that's, I'm trying to show you that's how common it is and how simple it is. But that's not God's way. He wants us to go the way of repentance. He wants to go us the way of confession and the way of truth. And just go to God and say, God, I am having a struggle with this. This is really hard for me. I'm ashamed of whatever, whatever. Amen? And, and, and sometimes shame is placed on whole generations of people. You know, and on, on women now, there's being a shame placed on even being born a woman. You understand what I'm saying? This is how it gets in, like in China where they start killing off female babies. This is how it gets started. By people with personal issues, with nonsensical things that they cannot change. They don't go to God about their problem. I said that about the women's movement years ago. I said if these women would just go to God and talk to him about. And it seemed like all of a sudden every woman had a problem with her husband. You know, and they brought it out in the open. I said, why she complain about him? And go home and talk to him about, you know, what's up with that? But, but this is how movements get started. The devil does this. He magnifies a problem till everybody's got it. You know what I'm saying? So that's why we gotta stay in the word, folks. We gotta stay faithful to him. In Jeremiah 23:40, we talked about everlasting shame coming upon people. Ezekiel 16.63 They were forever silenced because of shame. Shame is that powerful. Habakkuk 2.16 talks about replacing shame for glory. So there's your confirmation about Genesis 3. Instead of glory, they had shame. Amen? And so that is very powerful. The shame of it all is that it's that powerful against us folks. So keep your eye on it. Don't let it linger and don't start getting goofed up because of it. But get it out your life because you have authority and dominion over shame. Amen. All right, we'll stop. Father, we thank you for your word and for understanding. We thank you for goodness, mercy and blessing to come into our lives. And we honor you and we love you, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And praise God. And drug addicts, then shame can be assigned as a confusion over people's lives where they always choose the wrong way. It's not they're bad people. You know, nobody's good or bad. We're, we're people. Amen. You put on one or you put on the other, but, but God has a remedy for it. And so we can take authority in our prayers when we see this as a spirit that, that's over people. Anybody who's in disobedience and sin is in shame. Now they try to get arrogant around you and act like they're having a high old time and want to make fun of you, but it's their shame that drives them to do that. So we'll pray a prayer, renounce it. All you have to do is repeat after me and we'll renounce shame and we'll take authority over it and not make excuses for it, not let it run our lives, be able to root it out at the first inkling. You want to be God's bloodhound to get rid of it. You know, you you root these things out. You're not trying to condemn people with it, but you want the devil out of all these situations. And then we'll take on God's power. We'll take on his righteousness. We'll take on his uh, strength and, and his dominion for good. And, and it'll help things. Amen. So, okay, you repeat after me. Father God, we come to you by way of the blood of Jesus. 
We ask you to forgive our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And deliver us from evil and the power of darkness. We renounce shame, guilt, fear, confusion in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would forgive us for taking it on. Making excuses for it. And not commanding it away. And embracing it and hiding it. And we will not do that any longer. Please make us aware. When we are doing these things. So we can cease doing them. And so Father we thank you that we are forgiven. We receive your righteousness. Your power. Your love. Soundness of mind, ability to make decisions, and to have dominion for your kingdom to increase. So we thank you for setting us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Alright, so God heard that prayer, so He knows that we're willing to allow Him to do that work in us. Amen. It's very important, folks. A lot of times things don't go too far too quick because it's so easy to recoil and grab shame and grab doubt and grab all the wrong Things that, you know, to try and cover up and hide. We don't have to hide anymore. Amen. We don't have to be ashamed of anything. Amen. Not that you're proud of it, but you can admit it. You know, admission's a wonderful thing. Amen. So when you can go in God's courtroom and, and confess, God, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not feeling good about this. I keep getting in trouble over this same nonsense down here and I know it's wrong. So I'm going to let it go. And let you have everything. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Well, Father, we thank you for setting us free from the shame of it all. We thank you, Lord, that it is a shame that the devil can hold such wonderful people hostage because of such a small thing in your eyes. But we need to root it out and find it. So, Lord, help us to be diligent about rooting these things out, taking authority over them, not letting them operate any longer in our lives. We are so thankful to you for that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. All right. So if somebody needs prayer now, come on up.